Good morning. What a privilege to stand up here and cry like my son. Well, that's it. <laughs> To, to, be, to be able to stand before you and to praise God and to thank Him for all that He does for us daily. And every time I'm... Huh. Didn't think I'd do this. Every time I'm called upon to do something regarding God's Word and I get into it, it is amazing how He just gently spanks me all the way through and reminds me that I should be doing things like that every Every time I have an opportunity, so so if this won't go till tomorrow, I better jump in and quit worrying about the blubbering. But our passage this morning is from Colossians 1, 9 through 12. What I'd like to do is read that passage and then set the stage for you about what's happening, the context, if you will, about false preaching. Then we're going to pray, and then we're going to ask the Lord to bring calm over this place this morning. So if you would join me... Uh, if you want to use one of the Pew Bibles on page 368, you'll find this passage in Colossians 1, verses 9 through 12. And those Bibles are yours for the keeping. If you need a Bible or if you have someone you'd like to give one to, we'd love for you to take it. Colossians 1, 9 through 12. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Let me tell you what's happening here. This book of Colossians, as you know, is these are prayers that Paul is writing. This particular segment this morning is a prayer that Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. And at his side is his faithful servant Epaphras, who also is the minister at the church in Colossae. And on this particular occasion, Epaphras has had an opportunity to tell Paul about the false, <laughs> false teaching that has gotten into the church and with that, Paul is writing this prayer to those believers. Now, as we come to this part where I want to pray for us, I would ask that you please listen carefully as we go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be in your house that you've provided for us on this blessed day. I thank you for these sweet people that have taken their time to come and to honor and to glorify you. It is my prayer this morning as we open your words that the Holy Spirit will be in our midst and that there will be a calm and a peace and a quiet that descends upon us as the Holy Spirit works in our lives and shares with us what it is He would have us glean from today's text. Father, we love you. We love this time together. I thank you for these people. I pray that you'll guide and direct us and that we will honor and glorify you the remainder of this day. These things we pray in your Son's precious name. Amen. Well, these prayers in Paul's prison letters are pretty unique. And if you've not studied them from the standpoint of uniqueness, then perhaps today you'll understand that. To begin with, he prays for others. He doesn't pray for himself. And the request in his prayer center on spiritual blessings, not on material or physical matters. Please understand, it's not wrong to pray for physical or material needs. We should certainly do that. But Paul is not doing that in this prayer. He's pointing out that spiritual needs are vastly more important. So how would you pray for a group of people that you've never met? 
It's something we should be doing on a regular basis. But in this instance, Paul did not know these people except through the eyes of his faithful servant Epaphras. But he was excited to be able to pray for them and to spend time with them. All that Paul knew about the believers were was that he had learned from their faithful pastors, I mentioned a moment ago, that they were caught up in some some teaching, false teaching that was threatening their church. So he centered his praying on that problem. And in this prayer, you're going to see that Paul points out three requests that he prayed for. He prays for spiritual intelligence. He prays for practical obedience. And he prays for moral excellence. And what I would like to do is take each of those and let you see in God's Word, and it is an amazing thing when you understand. I told Andrea yesterday, you can read a passage of Scripture and read it and say, that was really nice. But when you pour over it and you pray over it, it is amazing what God begins to show you. And so I'm hoping that as we go through this morning, you will be, that your heart will just be bouncing around going, Lord, thank you for sharing with me the way that we should go about praying. You see, the false teachers promised the Colossian believers in verse 9, which I want to reread to you, they made a promise to them. Verse 9 says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Well, these false teachers had come into the church, and they were saying to these people, If you will just accept these new doctrines, you will be in the know. That's more or less the way they stated it to them. Words like knowledge and wisdom and spiritual understanding were a part of their religious vocabulary. What I find interesting is that Paul used those very words in his prayer. But here's why. I want you to stop and think for a moment how how deceptive Satan is. He's a chameleon. He can turn himself to whatever he wants. And, And we know through Scripture that Satan knows Scripture and has used it against people oftentimes. What we see in this particular case is, is these men have come in... And they're using, through Satan, borrowing a Christian vocabulary, if you will. The problem is they don't use the Christian dictionary in doing it. Long before these false teachers had adopted these very terms, these words had been in the Christian vocabulary for many years. The report from Epaphras convinced Paul that these believers truly knew Christ and that they were, in fact, born again. But there was much more that they needed to learn from Jesus, from God, And there's much more that they needed to know about him. What Paul was saying to them is, you don't need a new spiritual experience. Not at all. He said, you only need to grow in the experience that you've already had. When a person is born into God's family, as I hope all of us know, by faith in Christ, he's born with all that he needs for growth and maturity. And that is the theme of Colossians. If you look at Colossians 2.1, it says, and you are complete in him. What a marvelous thing that is, to know that I am complete in Him. No other experience is needed than the new birth. Paul said, don't look for something new. And he warned the church. He said, you continue to grow in that which you received at the beginning. That's a paraphrase, but that's what he said. You continue to grow in that you received at the beginning. Every believer, as we just read in verse 9, needs to have the knowledge of his will. So what does that mean? The Greek word translated knowledge in this verse carries the meaning. If you look it up, it says full knowledge. There's always more to learn about God's will and His will for our lives. Always more. The more I learn and the more I study, the more I open God's Word, the more I realize I don't know. It is an amazing thing about God's Word. No Christian would ever dare to say that he had arrived and didn't need to learn anything more. 
which is what the false teachers were telling these people. It would be like a college freshman on his first week in school to turn in a 10-page paper entitled The History of the Universe and do his hands like that. It would be a pretty naive position for us to think that we knew it all about God's Word. The will of God is an important part of successful training in our Christian life. God wants us, he tells us in Acts 22, he wants us to know his will. And he goes on to say, I want you to understand it in the book of Ephesians. Please remember, God is not some distant dictator who issues orders and doesn't bother to explain what he's saying. He clearly does. And because we are his friends, we can know what he is doing and why he's doing it. I saw a couple of heads, he said, Paul said, we're his friends. You are his friend. And John 15 tells us this, Jesus speaking, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Isn't it wonderful to know that we're sitting here today and that we're friends of our Savior? Amen? It's okay to say that occasionally. It is absolutely true. As we study His Word and pray, we discover new and exciting truths, I think, about God's will for His people. I don't know of anyone who can honestly sit down and open God's Word and study and pour over it and not walk away going, thank you, Lord, for what you showed me today. And that's my prayer for you. The word filled is a key word in the book of Colossians. I'm not going to point out all the places, but I think I counted seven times in the four books in the book of Colossians. It was a key word in the teachings of the false teachers that had invaded the Colossian church. But Paul used it many times. The word carries with it the idea of being fully equipped. The word filled, F-I-L-L-E-D, fully equipped. It was used in Scripture to describe a ship that was ready for a long voyage. So I want you to think of the believer. The believer in Christ has everything that he needs or that she needs for the voyage of life. That's exactly what he's done. He's equipped us and then told us once again, you are complete in him, complete in me. And from his fullness, we have received all grace upon grace. It's a marvelous picture that he paints as he prays and writes this prayer to these people that are languishing in the church in Colossae. In the language of the New Testament, to be filled means to be controlled by. For example, if you are filled with anger, we are, we are controlled by that very anger that has filled us. To be filled with the Spirit that we read about once again in Ephesians means to be controlled by the Spirit. So Paul's prayer then is that these believers might be controlled by the full knowledge of God's will. He's praying that they would be controlled by the full knowledge of His will. And the way you find that, and I've told you so many times in the past by holding my Bible and say, you go to the source. You go to the source and find out exactly what is being said. But how does this take place? How can believers grow in the full knowledge of God's will? I think the closing words in Colossians 1.9 tell us that. If you look at the end of 1.9, it says, By means of all wisdom and spiritual insight. We understand the will of God, and we understand it through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit teaches us to submit to Him. And as we pray and sincerely seek God's truth, he gives us, through the Spirit, the wisdom and the insight that we need. No shortcuts, no corners cut. He shows us exactly how to go about it. And my prayer for you today is that you'll grasp that. The general will of God for his children is very clearly given in the Bible. It's what I call the general will of God. 
Now, the specific will of God for any given situation must always agree with what he has already received and is revealed to us in his word. The better we know what God's general will is, the better you know that, the easier it's going to be to determine what his specific guidance is for you on a daily basis. I hope you understand. Paul didn't encourage the Colossians to seek visions or to wait for voices. That's not what he was telling them at all. He prayed that they might get deeper into God's word and have greater wisdom and insight concerning the will of God. He wanted them, it says in Scripture, to have all wisdom. That doesn't mean he wanted them to know everything, but that they would have all the wisdom necessary for making the decisions that faced him on a daily basis. Spiritual intelligence is the beginning of a successful, fruitful Christian life. Please remember, you don't have to be a seminarian in order to grasp these things. God has made it very available to you, and he's going to illuminate his word as you get into his word and study. Great men of God, like Charles Spurgeon and G. Campbell Morgan and H.A. Ironside, just to name a few, are men who never had the privilege of formal Bible training, but they were outstanding students of God's Word, and they developed habits of meditation and study. The first step toward the fullness of life is spiritual intelligence, and that is in growing growing in the will of God and knowing what the Word of God says. Now, the second thing that Paul prayed for, the second request was he prayed for practical obedience in verse 10. If you would read that along with me, if you have your Bible still open, verse 10, chapter 1 of Colossians. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. These false teachers, once again, attracted people through this offer of spiritual knowledge. But you know what? They didn't relate the spiritual knowledge to life. Not at all. In the Christian life, knowledge and obedience go together. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But knowledge and obedience, they have to go together in the Christian life. There's no separation between learning and living. Actually, the wisdom about which Paul prayed was not some head knowledge of deep spiritual truths. True spiritual wisdom should affect the way that we live our life every day. It should affect you every single day, and it happens without you thinking about it in many instances. Wisdom and practical knowledge have to go together. They must go together. And as we look at what happens now, I think you'll understand why that's the case. All Bible truths are practical. There's nothing theoretical about God's Word. It's practical knowledge that He gives us. And if we're growing in knowledge, we should also be growing in grace. There are two words that I've spoken about before here Church of the Apostles, two words that really summarize the practicality of the Christian life. And those words are walk and work. And the sequence is important. First, we have God imparts wisdom to us. Then we walk and then we work. I cannot work for God unless I'm walking with Him. And I can't walk with Him if I'm ignorant of His will. So the believer who spends time daily in His Word and in prayer is going to know God's will and be able to walk with Him and work for Him. And that should be high on our list. That should be what, we, what drives us on a daily basis. After all, I submit to you this morning, our purpose in life is not to please ourselves. I hope that doesn't come as a shock to some of you. It came as a shock to me later in life that it wasn't about me. Our, our lot in life should be to please our Lord and our Savior. We should walk worthy of our calling, we're told in Scripture, and worthy of the gospel, which means that we're going to walk worthy of God In short, we should walk to please God. Each one of those is a scripture in and of itself, right out of God's Word. 
You see, it's not we who work for God. It is God who works in us and He works through us to produce the fruit of His grace. And Christian service is the result of Christian devotion. The work that we do should be the outflow of the very life that we live. The fact is, it is abiding in Christ that we can, that through abiding in Christ, that we can produce the fruit that comes from Him. God's wisdom reveals His will. I would hope that you can see that this morning. God's wisdom is what reveals His will to us. And as we obey His will in our daily walk, we work for Him and we bear fruit. There is a blessed byproduct of this experience, which I want you to really grasp this morning, and that is increasing in the knowledge of God. As you walk and as you work for Him, we get to know Him better and better every day. Is there anything that you would rather have happen that you would know your Savior better at the end of every single day? That would be a prayer that I would have for all of us this morning. I want you to tell you something that's very true for me. I hope I'm the only one here. I feel like I stand up here occasionally and every time I'm standing there repenting of things, but our Christian lives desperately need balance. And I don't know if you feel like yours is perfectly balanced. Certainly we get to know God better as we pray in our private rooms or wherever it is that you like to go and pray and as we meditate on His Word, but we also get to know Him as we walk in our daily lives and as we work to win others to help His people. I'm going to jump to something. It's not really different, but I want you to think about worship and service and how they go together. They're not competitive, yet I've seen people that seemingly think they must be. They always go together, worship and service. When he was ministering on earth, what we would see happen is we'd see our Lord Jesus pray, and then he would go out and serve. He would retire to pray. He might pray all night, and then he would go out to serve. As we spend time with God, we get to understand Him and His will for our lives, and as we go out to obey Him, we continue in the learning process. So practical obedience, the second thing that Paul prayed for, means pleasing God. It means serving Him and getting to know Him better. I'm going to make a bold statement that I read this week, and I really have learned that I grasp, I really have a a good feeling about the, the statement. Getting to know him better, it says, any doctrine that isolates the believer from the needs of the world around him is not spiritual doctrine. We're not meant to be taking care of just ourselves. We're supposed to be sharing with all of those around us. And we need to be spending time pouring back into the lives of people that God puts in front of us. D.L. Moody often said every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. And it's easy to see that that's what the Apostle Paul believed in the way that he lived his life. Paul prayed that we might have spiritual intelligence and that this intelligence would result in practical obedience. But the third request that he prayed for completes the first two, and without it, the Christian life would never become a mature life. He prayed for moral excellence in verses 11 and 12, and if you'd like to follow along or just let me read it to you, hear the words in 11 and 12. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I mentioned that wisdom and conduct should always be related, but they should always be related specifically to moral character. One of the great problems in the evangelical world today is there's emphasis on spiritual knowledge and there's emphasis on Christian service but they're never connected to matters of personal character. 
And if we ever had a time in America or in the world that we needed personal character to be rectified or to stand up, it's today. And I pray that we will understand what God's Word has to say about that. We must connect them with personal character. For example, there are people who claim to have God's wisdom, yet they lack love and kindness and the other basic qualities that make the Christian life very distinctive and beautiful. They have to go together. Knowledge, conduct, service, character, we could put a whole lot of words together there that must always go together. We know God's will in order that we might obey it, and in obeying it we serve Him and grow in Christian character. And I doubt that any of us are perfectly balanced in those four, but we should, we should pray and work toward achieving balance in that part of our life. The grace of our Christian lives is but a result of God's power at work in you. Spiritual growth and maturity will only come as you yield to God's power and permit Him to work in you. I don't know about you, but I think a lot of people usually think of God's power as being revealed in these great feats of daring that we see in the Bible, like the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, how many times have I played that back where Moses, due to the good Lord, parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could pass through? <clears throat> or David leading a victorious army. I think about those things. Or Paul raising someone from the dead. We like to think on those terms. But I want you to think this morning with me that there is emphasis, when there's emphasis on Christian character, we're talking about emphasis on patience, long-suffering, joyfulness, thanksgiving. Those four are mentioned over and over. The inner victories of the soul, we're taught, are just as great or greater than those others that I mentioned prior to this. For David to control his temper, for example, when he was maligned in 2 Samuel was just as great or a greater victory than when he slayed Goliath because of knowing who he was and what was happening. Proverbs tells us, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. It doesn't have to be one of these off-the-chart things like the parting of the Red Sea to show that God is the master of our lives. How many of you in here think you're very patient? Oh, goodness, I saw a hand. Good for you. I'm not going to say your name, Gordon, but I'm glad that you're patient. It is hard to be patient. And I pray as I went through this, I realized just how impatient I was. And it is an amazing thing. But patience is an important characteristic of a maturing Christian life. As a matter of fact, if you don't learn to be patient at some point in your life, you're not likely to learn anything else. It's important. As believers, we're able to rejoice even in times of difficulty or tribulation because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance. You know that. We know that perseverance brings proven character. We know that. And proven character brings hope. How do we know that? We know it because Romans tells us, God's Word spells it out for us, that that's why that happens. We must never think that patience has anything to do with being complacent. Patience is actually a very active thing. It's endurance in action. It's not a Christian sitting in a rocking chair waiting for God to deliver some lightning bolt out of the clear blue to him. It's a missionary on the battlefield praying every day in every spare moment that God would show him and reveal to him what he would have him do or what he would have her do. It's a runner in the race that we read about in Hebrews refusing to stop because they want to win the race. They want to be where God wants them to be. You see, too many Christians, in my opinion, have a tendency to quit when circumstances become very difficult. The, the late Dr. Ray Edmond, the president of Wheaton College, always told his students, it's always too soon to quit. 
And I've thought about that statement or statements like that many times when I find trying circumstances in my own life. You see, it isn't talent or training that guarantees victory. It's perseverance. It's perseverance. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about perseverance. He said, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. Think about it. Perseverance is a quality that we should all be praying for. Along with patience, we need long-suffering. Yet you ask people what long-suffering means, and the, the words bounce all over the place. Let me give you some good biblical reference to what long-suffering means. The word means self-restraint. It's the opposite of revenge. Patience has to do primarily with circumstances, while long-suffering has to do with people. God is long-suffering toward people because of His love and grace. And aren't you glad He is? Aren't you glad He is? It's amazing how people can patiently endure very trying things only to lose their tempers with a friend or with a loved one. I'm always reminded of Moses. He was patient during his contest with the Pharaoh in Egypt, but he lost his temper with his own people. And as a result, he forfeited his right to enter the promised land. Proverbs tells us once again, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. So please put these together. Patience and long-suffering go together if you're growing spiritually. Paul listed those as the true marks of a Christian minister. Certainly Paul displayed those graces in his own life, but the great example of patience and long-suffering in the Old Testament, in my opinion, has to be Job. And in the New Testament, it has to be Jesus himself. You know, it is amazing when you break, in, break God's word and look at it verse by verse and word by word how he begins to reveal to you so many wonderful things. God's power is evidenced in our lives, not only in our patience and our long suffering, but he goes right on to say in our joyfulness. When circumstances are difficult, we should exhibit joyful patience. And when people are hard to live with, and I'm, anybody here have anybody hard to live with around them? Probably not. I certainly don't at my house, but some of you may. When people are hard to live with, we should reveal joyful long-suffering. I'm reminded of a commercial that I see on television occasionally. It's two cartoon characters, and many of you probably know who they are. It's a little boy standing by his bed, a cartoon character, his mother, a cartoon character, laying in bed. And he's standing beside the bed going, Mommy, 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 Mother, 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 Mother. Her hair stands up and she goes, What? A perfect time for joyful long-suffering. To understand there is a kind of patience that endures but does not enjoy. Paul prayed that the Colossian Christians would experience joyful patience and long-suffering. We often use the word joy and happiness interchangeably also. But we should make a distinction between those. Happiness depends on happenings. And I'm going to give you a definition that I'm fearful fits most of us. If circumstances are encouraging and people are kind, we're happy. Right? But joy is independent of both circumstances and people. The most joyful epistle that Paul wrote is Philippians. Where was he? He was in jail. And he faced the possibility of being martyred for his faith, yet it, it just evokes all of these wonderful things when you read that joyful epistle. The only God's Spirit working in you can give you the joy in the midst of problem circumstances and problem people. 
It is a wonderful thing to pray about and to pray for. And that's what Paul is praying for the people in Colossae. I can recall times in my own life when circumstances around me pointed to difficulty and possible defeat. One of the most difficult things in our life was when we lost our sweet, precious Jen. But I tell you, my heart was filled with a spiritual joy that can only come from God. That's the only place it can come from. It's sad to say I remember way too many times when I gave in to problems around me and I lost both the joy and the victory. And Paul is praying, don't let that happen to you for the people in Colossae. And then the fourth evidence of God's power in our lives is thankfulness. Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit are going to be joyful and thankful. And when we lose our joy, we start complaining and we become critical. And if you've never stopped to think about how many times thankfulness is mentioned in the Bible, I don't know how many, but I know in the book of Colossians it's just one after another about why we should be thankful. Some people are appreciative by nature and some are not. And it's the ones who are not who especially need God's power to express thanksgiving. We should remember that every good gift comes from God and that He is, as the theologians put it, the source, the support, and the end of all things. The last thing I'll remind you of, and then we'll wrap up, is that thankfulness is the opposite of selfishness. It's not words that we think about a lot, but the selfish person says this, I deserve what comes to me. Other people ought to make me happy. It's all about me. But the mature Christian realizes that life is a gift from God and the blessings of life come only from His hand. Of course, the one blessing that should make us constantly, that should move us constantly to thanksgiving is that God has made us fit, as it says in the end of that passage. He has made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. What a great way to finish on the Sunday before Easter. What does the word fit mean in this passage? It means qualified. God has qualified each of you for heaven, if you know the Savior. He's qualified you for heaven. By giving His life for you and for me, He has qualified you and cleansed you to be with Him in heaven. And while we're waiting for Christ to return, we enjoy our share of the spiritual inheritance that we have in Him right here on the earth that He's provided. As you go back and review this marvelous prayer and think about Paul writing and pouring into the lives of these people that he's never met, I hope you can see how penetrating it is. We do need spiritual intelligence. If we're going to live to please God, we must have it. We also need practical obedience in our walk and in our work each and every day. But the result of all of this will end up being spiritual power that God gives to the inner man, power that leads in joyful patience and long-suffering, and great thanksgiving. It's my prayer that all of us will understand today what God has for you if you'll only reach out to Him and let Him do His mighty work in you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to stand before you and to open your Word. I thank you for these sweet people, and I thank you for your Word. I pray that we will honor and glorify you throughout our lives and that we will allow you to be the Master each and every day. Lord, bless these people as we leave here today, and I pray that each and every one of us will honor and glorify you in all that we say and do. For it is in your Son's precious name that we pray. Amen.